0: Part Thirty Eight, of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Thirty Eight, Doctor William Dodd, executed for forgery. Part Two. The doctor was then arraigned upon the indictment, which charged him in the usual terms with the forgery upon the Earl of Chesterfield and the evidence in proof of the facts above stated having been given, the court called upon the prisoner for his defence. He addressed the court and jury in the following terms. My lords and gentlemen of the jury, upon the evidence which has this day been produced against me, I find it very difficult to address your lordships. There is no man in the world who has a deeper sense of the heinous nature of the crime for which I stand indicted than myself. I view it, my lords, in all its extent of malignancy towards a commercial state like ours, but, my lords, I humbly apprehend, though no lawyer, that the moral turpitude and malignancy of the crime always, both in the eye of the law and of religion, consists in the intention. I am informed, my lord, that the act of Parliament on this head runs perpetually in this style, with an intention to defraud, such an intention my lords and gentlemen of the jury i believe has not been attempted to be proved upon me and the consequences that have happened which have appeared before you sufficiently prove that a perfect and ample restitution has been made i leave it my lords to you and the gentlemen of the jury to consider that if an unhappy man ever deviates from the law of right yet if in the single first moment of recollection he does all that he can to make a full and perfect amends what, my lord and gentlemen of the jury, can God and man desire further? My lords, there are a variety of little circumstances too tedious to trouble you with, with respect to this matter. Were I to give loose to my feelings, I have many things to say which I am sure you would feel with respect to me, but as it appears on all hands that no injury, intentional or real, has been done to any man living, I hope that you will consider the case in its true state of clemency. I must observe to your lordships that, though I have met with all candour in this court, yet I have been pursued with excessive cruelty. I have been prosecuted after the most express engagements, after the most solemn assurances, after the most delusive, soothing arguments of Mr. Manley. I have been prosecuted with a cruelty scarcely to be paralleled. A person avowedly criminal, in the same indictment with myself, has been brought forth as a capital witness against me a fact, I believe, totally unexampled. My lord, oppressed as I am with infamy, loaded as I am with distress, sunk under this cruel prosecution, your lordships and the gentlemen of the jury cannot think a life a matter of any value to me. No, my lords, I solemnly protest that death of all blessings would be the most pleasant to me after this pain. I have yet, my lords, ties which call upon me ties which render me desirous even to continue this miserable existence. I have a wife, my lords, who for twenty-seven years has lived an unparalleled example of conjugal attachment and fidelity, and whose behaviour during this trying scene would draw tears of approbation, I am sure even from the most inhuman. My lords, I have creditors, honest men, who will lose much by my death. I hope, for the sake of justice towards them, some mercy will be shown to me if upon the whole these considerations at all avail with you if upon the most impartial survey of matters not the slightest intention of injury can appear to any one and i solemnly declare it was in my power to replace it in three months of this i assured mr robertson frequently and had his solemn assurances that no man should be privy to it but mr fletcher and himself and if no injury was done to any man upon earth, I then hope, I trust, I fully confide myself in the tenderness, humanity, and protection of my country. The jury retired for about ten minutes, then returned with a verdict that the prisoner was guilty, but at the same time presented a petition humbly recommending the doctor to the royal mercy. It was afterwards declared that upon the reserved point the opinion of the judges was that, he had been legally convicted. On the last day of the sessions, Dr. Dodd was again put to the bar to receive judgment. The clerk of the arraigns then addressed him, saying, Dr. William Dodd, you stand convicted of forgery. What have you to say why this court should not give you judgment to die according to law? In reply, Dr. Dodd addressed the court as follows. My lord, I now stand before you a dreadful example of human infirmity. I entered upon public life with the expectations common to young men whose education has been liberal, and whose abilities have been flattered, and, when I became a clergyman, I considered myself as not impairing the dignity of the order. I was not an idol, nor, I hope, a useless minister. I taught the truths of Christianity with the zeal of conviction and the authority of innocence. My labours were approved, my pulpit became popular, and I have reason to believe that of those who heard me. Some have been preserved from sin, and some have been reclaimed. Condescend, my lord, to think, if these considerations aggravate my crime, how much they must embitter my punishment. Being distinguished and elevated by the confidence of mankind, I had too much confidence in myself, and thinking, my integrity, what others thought it, established in sincerity and fortified by religion, I did not consider the danger of vanity, nor suspect the deceitfulness of mine own heart. THE DAY OF CONFLICT CAME IN WHICH TEMPTATION SEIZED AND OVERWHELMED ME. I COMMITTED THE CRIME WHICH I ENTREAT YOUR LORDSHIP TO BELIEVE THAT MY CONSCIENCE hourly REPRESENTS TO ME IN ITS FULL BULK OF MISCHIEF AND MALIGNITY. MANY HAVE BEEN OVERPOWERED BY TEMPTATION, WHO ARE NOW AMONG THE PENITENT IN HEAVEN. TO AN ACT NOW WAITING THE DECISION OF VINDICTIVE JUSTICE, I WILL NOW PRESUME TO OPPOSE THE COUNTERBALANCE OF ALMOST THIRTY YEARS, A GREAT PART OF THE LIFE OF MAN passed in exciting and exercising charity, in relieving such distress as I now feel, in administering those consolations which I now want, I will not otherwise extenuate my offence than by declaring what I hope will appear to many, and what many circumstances make probable, that I did not intend finally to defraud, nor will it become me to apportion my own punishment by alleging that my sufferings have been not much less than my guilt. I have fallen from reputation which ought to have made me cautious, and from a fortune which ought to have given me content. I am sunk at once into poverty and scorn. My name and my crime fill the ballads in the streets, the sport of the thoughtless, and the triumph of the wicked. It may seem strange, my lord, that remembering what I have lately been, I should still wish to continue what I am. But contempt of death— how speciously, soever, it may mingle with heathen virtues has nothing in it suitable to Christian penitence. Many motives impel me to beg earnestly for life. I feel the natural horror of a violent death, the universal dread of untimely dissolution. I am desirous to recompense the injury I have done to the clergy, to the world and to religion, and to efface the scandal of my crime by the example of my repentance, but above all I wish to die with a thought's more composed and calmer preparation. The gloom and confusion of a prison, the anxiety of a trial, the horrors of suspense, and the inevitable vicissitudes of passion, leave not the mind in a due disposition for the holy exercises of prayer and self-examination. Let not a little life be denied me, in which I may, by meditation and contrition, prepare myself to stand at the tribunal of omnipotence, and support the presence of that judge, who shall distribute to all, according to their works who will receive and pardon the repenting sinner, and from whom the merciful shall obtain mercy. For these reasons, my lords, amidst shame and misery, I yet wish to live, and most humbly implore, that I may be recommended by your lordships to the clemency of his majesty. Here he sunk down overcome with mental agony, and some time elapsed before he was sufficiently recovered to hear the dreadful sentence of the law which the recorder pronounced upon him in the following words. "'Dr. William Dodd, you have been convicted of the offence of publishing a forged and counterfeit bond, knowing it to be forged and counterfeited, and you have the advantage which the laws of this country afford to every man in your situation, a fair an impartial and an attentive trial. The jury, to whose justice you appealed, have found you guilty. Their verdict has undergone the consideration of the learned judges, and they found no ground to impeach the justice of that verdict.' You yourself have admitted the justice of it, and now the very painful duty that the necessity of the law imposes upon the court to pronounce the sentence of that law against you remains only to be performed. You appear to entertain a very proper sense of the enormity of the offence which you have committed. You appear, too, in a state of contrition of mind, and, I doubt not, have duly reflected how far the dangerous tendency of the offence you have been guilty of is increased by the influence of example." in being committed by a person of your character, and of the sacred function of which you are a member. These sentiments seem to be yours. I would wish to cultivate such sentiments, but I would not wish to add to the anguish of your mind by dwelling upon your situation. Your application for mercy must be made elsewhere. It would be cruel in the court to flatter you. There is a power of dispensing mercy, where you may apply your own good sense, and the contrition you express, will induce you to lessen the influence of the example by publishing your hearty and sincere detestation of the offence of which you are convicted, and will show you that to attempt to palliate or extenuate it would indeed add to the influence of a crime of this kind being committed by a person of your character and known abilities. I would therefore warn you against anything of that kind." Now, having said this, I am obliged to pronounce the sentence of the law, which is, that you, Dr. William Dodd, will be carried from hence to the place from whence you came, that from thence you be carried to the place of execution, and that there you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. To this Dr. Dodd replied, Lord Jesus, receive my soul, and was immediately conveyed from the bar. Great exertions were now made to save Dr. Dodd. The newspapers were filled with letters and paragraphs in his favour, individuals of all ranks exerted themselves in his behalf, the members of several charities which had been benefited by him joined in application to the throne for mercy, parish officers went in mourning from house to house, to procure subscriptions to a petition to the King, and this petition which, with the names of nearly thirty thousand persons, filled twenty-three sheets of parchment, was actually presented. Even the Lord Mayor and Common Council went in a body to St. James's to solicit mercy for the convict. These were, however, of no avail. On the 15th of June the Privy Council assembled, and deliberated on the cases of the several prisoners then under condemnation, and in the end a warrant was ordered to be made out for the execution of Dr. Dodd, with two others, one of whom was afterwards reprieved, on the 27th of the same month. Having been flattered with hopes of a pardon, he appeared to be much shocked at the intimation of his approaching destiny, but resumed in a short time a degree of fortitude sufficient to enable him to pass through the last scene of his life with firmness and decency. On the twenty-sixth he took leave of his wife and some friends, and he afterwards declared himself ready to atone for the offence he had given to the world. His deportment was meek, humble, and devout, expressive of resignation and contrition, and calculated to inspire sentiments of respect for his person, and concern for his unhappy fate. He was attended to the fatal spot, in a morning coach, by the Reverend Mr. Villette, ordinary of Newgate, and the Reverend Mr. Doby, another criminal named John Harris, was executed at the same time. It is impossible to give an idea of the immense crowds of people that thronged the streets from Newgate to Tyburn, when the prisoners arrived at the fatal tree, and were placed in the cart Dr. Dodd exhorted his fellow-sufferer in so generous a manner, as testified that he had not forgotten his duty as a clergyman, and he was also very fervent in the exercise of his own devotions. Just before he was turned off, he was observed to whisper to the executioner, and although we have not the means of ascertaining the precise purport of this remark, it is pretty obvious from the fact that as soon as the cart had been drawn away from the gibbet, he ran immediately under the scaffold, and took hold of the doctor's legs, as if to steady his body, and the unfortunate gentleman appeared to die without pain. Of his behaviour before the execution a particular account was given by Mr. Villette, ordinary of Newgate, in the following terms. On the morning of his death I went to him, with the Reverend Mr. Doby, chaplain of the Maudlin, whom he desired to attend him in the place of execution. He appeared composed, and when I asked him how he had been supported he said he had had some comfortable sleep by which he should be better enabled to perform his duty as we went from his room in our way to the chapel we were joined by his friend who had spent the foregoing evening with him and also by another clergyman when we were in the vestry adjoining the chapel, he exhorted his fellow-sufferer, who had attempted to destroy himself but had been prevented by the vigilance of the keeper. He spoke to him with great tenderness and emotion of heart, entreating him to consider that he had but a short time to live, and that it was highly necessary that he, as well as himself, made good use of their time, implored pardon of God under a deep sense of sin, and looked to that Lord by whose merits alone sinners can be saved. He desired me to call in the other gentleman, who likewise assisted him to move the heart of the poor youth, but the doctor's words were the most pathetic and effectual. He lifted up his hands and cried, O Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us, and give, O give unto him, my fellow sinner, that as we suffer together, we may go together to heaven. His conversation to this poor youth was so moving that tears flowed from the eyes of all present. When we went into the chapel to prayer and the Holy Communion, true contrition and warmth of devotion appeared evident in him throughout the whole service. After it was ended, he again addressed himself to Harris in the most moving and persuasive manner, and not without effect, for he declared that he was glad that he had not made away with himself, and said he was easier, and hoped he would now go to heaven. The doctor told him how Christ had suffered for them, and that he himself was a greater sinner than he, as he had sinned more against light and conviction, and therefore his guilt was greater and that, as he was confident that mercy was shown to his soul, so he should look to Christ and trust in his merits. He prayed to God to bless his friends who were present with him, and to give his blessing to all his brethren the clergy, that he would pour out his Spirit upon them, and make them true ministers of Jesus Christ, that they might follow the divine precepts of their heavenly Master. Turning to one who stood near him, he stretched out his hand, and said, "'Now, my dear friend, speculation is at an end.' All must be real. What poor ignorant beings we are. He prayed for the Magdalenes, and wished they were there to sing for him the 23rd Psalm. After he had waited for some time for the officers, he asked what o'clock it was, and being told that it was half an hour after eight, he said, I wish they were ready, for I long to be gone. He requested of his friends, who were in tears about him, to pray for him, to which he was answered by two of them, We pray more than language can utter. He replied, I believe it. At length he was summoned to go down into a part of the yard which is enclosed from the rest of the jail, where the two unhappy convicts and the friends of the doctor were alone. On his seeing two prisoners looking out of the windows, he went to them and exhorted them so pathetically that they both wept abundantly. He said once, I am now a spectacle to men, and shall soon be a spectacle to angels. Just before the sheriff's officers came with the halters, one who was walking with him told him, that there was yet a little ceremony he must pass through before he went out. He asked, What is that? You will be bound. He looked up and said, Yet I am free. My freedom is there, pointing upwards. He bore it with Christian patience, and beyond what might have been expected, and when the men offered to excuse tying his hands, he desired them to do their duty, and thank them for their kindness. After he was bound I offered to assist him with my arm in conducting him through the yard, where several people were assembled to see him, but he replied with seeming pleasure, No, I am as firm as a rock. As he passed along the yard, the spectators and prisoners wept and bemoaned him, and he in return prayed God to bless them. On the way to the execution he consoled himself in reflecting and speaking on what Christ had suffered for him, lamented the depravity of human nature, which made sanguinary laws necessary, and said he could gladly have died in the prison yard, as being led out to public execution, tended greatly to distress him. He desired me to read to him the 51st Psalm, and also pointed out an admirable penitential prayer from Roselle's Prisoner's Director. He prayed again for the King, and likewise for the people. When he came near the streets where he formerly dwelt, he was much affected and wept. He said probably his tears would seem to be the effect of cowardice, but it was a weakness he could not well help, and added, he hoped he was going to a better home. When he arrived at the gallows, he ascended the cart, and spoke to his fellow-sufferer. He then prayed, not only for himself, but also for his wife, and the unfortunate youth that suffered with him. And declaring that he died in the true faith of the gospel of Christ, in perfect love and charity with all mankind, and with thankfulness to his friends, he was launched into eternity, imploring mercy for his soul, for the sake of the blessed Redeemer. A paper of which the following is a copy had been delivered by dr dodd to mr villette to be read at the place of execution but it was omitted as it seemed impossible to make all present aware of its contents to the words of dying men regard has always been paid i am brought hither to suffer death for an act of fraud of which i confess myself guilty with shame such as my former state of life naturally produces and I hope with such sorrow as he, to whom the heart is known, will not disregard. I repent that I have violated the laws by which peace and confidence are established among men, I repent that I have attempted to injure my fellow-creatures, and I repent that I have brought disgrace upon my order, and discredit upon religion, but my offences against God are without number, and can admit only of general confession and general repentance." grant Almighty God for the sake of Jesus Christ, that my repentance, however late, however imperfect, may not be in vain. The little good that now remains in my power is to warn others against those temptations by which I have been seduced. I have always sinned against conviction. My principles have never been shaken. I have always considered the Christian religion as a revelation from God, and its divine author as the Saviour of the world. But the laws of God, though never disowned by me, have often been forgotten. I was led astray from religious strictness by the delusion of show and the delights of voluptuousness. I never knew or attended to the calls of frugality, or the needful minuteness of painful economy. Vanity and pleasure, into which I plunged, required expense disproportionate to my income. Expense brought distress upon me, and distress, importunate distress, urged me to temporary fraud. For this fraud I am to die, and I die declaring, in the most solemn manner, that, however, I have deviated from my own precepts. I have taught others, to the best of my knowledge, and with all sincerity, the true way to eternal happiness. My life, for some few unhappy years past, has been dreadfully erroneous, but my ministry has always been sincere. I have constantly believed, and I now leave the world solemnly avowing my conviction, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus. And I entreat all who are here to join with me in my last petition, that for the sake of that Lord Jesus Christ my sins may be forgiven, and my soul received into His everlasting kingdom. William Dodd, June twenty seventh, 1777. The body of the doctor was on the Monday morning following carried to Cowley, in Buckinghamshire, and deposited in the church there. During the doctor's confinement in Newgate, a period of several months, he chiefly employed himself in writing various pieces, which show at once his piety and talent. The principal of these were his thoughts in prison, in five parts, from which we cannot doubt, in finishing our life of so eminent, yet unfortunate, a man, will be gratified by the insertion of a few short extracts i began these thoughts says the unhappy man writing in newgate under the date of twenty third of april seventeen seventy seven after his condemnation merely from the impression in my mind without plan purpose or motive more than the situation of my soul i continued thence on a thoughtful and regular plan and i have been enabled wonderfully in a state which in better days i should have supposed would have destroyed all power of reflection to bring them nearly to a conclusion I dedicate them to God, and the reflecting serious among my fellow-creatures, and I bless the Almighty for the ability to go through them amidst the terrors of this dire place Newgate, and the bitter anguish of my disconsolate mind. The thinking will easily pardon all inaccuracies, as I am neither able nor willing to read over these melancholy lines with a curious or critical eye. They are imperfect, but in the language of the heart, and had I time and inclination might, and should be, improved, but. Signed, W.D. The unfortunate author's thoughts on his imprisonment are thus introduced. My friends are gone, harsh, on its sullen hinge, grates the dread door, the massy bolts respond, tremendous to the surly keeper's touch, the dire keys clang, with movements dull and slow while their behest the ponderous locks perform, and fastened firm the object of their care is left to solitude, to sorrow left. But wherefore fastened, O oh, still stronger bonds than bolts or locks or doors or molten brass, to solitude and sorrow could consign his anguished soul, and prison him though free. For whither should he fly, or where, produce in open day and to the golden sun his hapless head, whence every laurel torn on his bald brow sits grinning infamy, and all in sportive triumph twines around the keen the stinging arrows of disgrace. After dwelling on the miseries of that dreary confinement, at sight of which he formerly started back with horror, he adds, O oh, dismal change! now not in friendly sort a Christian visitor to pour the balm of Christian comfort in some wretch's ear. I am that wretch myself, and want, much want, that Christian consolation I bestowed, so cheerfully bestowed, want, want, my God, from thee the mercy, which thou know'st my gladsome soul ever sprang forth with transport to impart. Why then mysterious providence pursued with such unfeeling ardour? Why pursued to death's dread borne by men, to me unknown? Why stop the deep question? It o'erwhelms my soul. It reels, it staggers. Earth turns round. My brain whirls in confusion. My impetuous heart throbs with pulsation not to be restrained. Why, where, O oh, Chesterfield, my son, my son? The unfortunate divine afterwards thus proceeds. Nay, talk not of composure. I had thought in older time that my weak heart was soft, and pity's self might break it. I had thought that marble-eyed severity would crack the slender nerves which guide my reins of sense, and give me up to madness. Tis not so. My heart is callous, and my nerves are tough. It will not break, they will not crack, or else what more? Just heaven was wanting to the deed than to behold. Oh, that eternal night! Had in that moment, screened from myself, my stand-up to behold, ah, piercing sight, forget it, tis distraction, speak who can, but I am lost, a criminal adjudged. It is not a little singular that Dr. Dodd, a few years before his death, published a sermon entitled, The Frequency of Capital Punishments Inconsistent with Justice, Sound Policy, and Religion. This, he says, was intended to have been preached in the Chapel Royal at St. James's, but omitted on account of the absence of the court during the author's month of waiting. The following extract will show the unfortunate man's opinion on this subject, although there is no reason to suppose that he then contemplated the commission of the crime for which he suffered. He says, It would be easy to show the injustice of those laws which demand blood for the slightest offences, the superior justice and propriety of inflicting perpetual and laborious servitude, the greater utility hereof to the sufferer, as well as to the State, especially wherein we have a variety of necessary occupations, particularly noxious and prejudicial to the lives of the honest and industrious, and in which they might be employed, who had forfeited their lives and their liberties to society. End of Part 38.